Welcome to Living Word Church. Let's hear from Pastor Ben as he teaches us from our Pray Like Paul series. And so this morning I titled the message Strength to Comprehend. And so we're going to talk about praying for strength to comprehend. So let's pray and we'll jump into the message. Father, I thank you for this opportunity to to preach, to preach your word, to, to look at prayer. And I pray that you would help all of us challenge our hearts in the area of prayer, that we would be prayer warriors, that we would not neglect prayer. Help us to be people of prayer, people of prayer in our individual lives, or people of prayer as a church, where we want to be praying people. And I pray that, that as, uh, as we are challenged in prayer, that you would convict our hearts and that we would respond. And I pray this morning that you would help me to open my mouth to preach the Word, and to exalt Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, one of the top five hardest math problems, equations problems, is called the Colette's Conjecture. The Colette's Conjecture. Anybody ever heard of that? Ty Wallace, who's our math teacher, and I'm a Christian, I guarantee you he's heard of the Colette's Conjecture. So it's one of the top five hardest math problems. It goes like this. The Colette's conjecture focuses primarily on sequences beginning with any positive integer. It states that if we start with any positive number, such as n, I didn't know n was a number, but it is, uh, then each term is obtained by as follows. If the previous term is even, the next term is one half of the previous term, that is n over 2. If the previous term is odd, The next term is 3 times the previous term plus 1. That is 3n plus 1 to the 5th power. What do you think? The Colette's conjecture. Seems almost too hard to comprehend, doesn't it? Like, look, I'm a a product of homeschool before homeschool was legit. (laughs) And uh, as an illegitimate homeschool product... um, the highest math that I ever took was pre-algebra. So the Colette's conjecture is beyond my comprehension. I, I, don't, I don't know algebra, um, calculus. I mean, my kids have no help from me for math. This seems, it almost seems too hard to comprehend, doesn't it? It hurts our brain to think too long about what I just read. It just reading it hurts your brain, just like it did mine. Strength, we need strength to comprehend. And I, I, but I bet you, if Ty Wallace, our math teacher at Home of Christian, would be here, and I would get him to come up. He could explain the Colette's conjecture in a way that we could start to comprehend it, right? We could begin to tiptoe into some understanding of this complex math equation, these, com- these complex rules and understanding. We could begin to get it, but left on our own, we, we, we can't really get it. We need some help. And what we're going to look at today is I think some remedial thing, things that we know, things that we understand as Christians we've been taught and, and, we've, been, and we've heard most of our Christian life, all of our Christian life. But I believe that the Apostle Paul, when you look at his life and, and you see the prayers that he, that he prays that we see in Ephesians and in other, uh, others of his letters, Paul doesn't pray a lot about physical needs and sickness and and ending suffering and and pain. He prays a lot about spiritual realities. He prays a lot about understanding and comprehending the greatness and the majesty of God and His Gospel and His glory. And and Paul has a focus on prayer 
And he prays for the believers that they would have strength to comprehend the greatness and the majesty of God. And so before we get into the next few weeks of this series where we're going to talk about praying for specific things, I believe it's important to understand that the most important reality for us to pray about and to ponder is the reality of Christ and His work and who we are in Him. And Paul is praying to that end. And so let's, let's look at this section. This is the section we're going to look at over the next couple of weeks. Kind of two sections. Ephesians 1 and Ephesians 3. So I have a little bit to read here. But I, I, I want you to pay attention to the language in Ephesians 1 and Ephesians 3 of how Paul is not praying about sickness and disease. He's not praying for the believers about what they're walking through in difficulty. He's praying about something different. Listen to Paul's prayer for the believers at Ephesus. Ephesians 1, for this reason. Because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. Now here is what he's praying for. I'm praying that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of Him. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which He has called you. What are the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe? according to the working of His great might that He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places. Do you see it? Paul's praying that we would know the greatness of the power of Christ. Look at Ephesians 3. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of His glory, He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being. Right? Paul is focusing on prayer on the, for the inside of us, not the outside of us. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Do you see the prayer that Paul is praying? He's saying, I'm praying for you believers. Not that you'd be healed from cancer. Not that you would get the job that you're looking for. Not that, not that you'd have all your physical needs met. Though there, there is a place for praying for those things. And we'll talk about that as we go on in the series. But, but Paul is it's getting his priorities right here. When you look at the prayers of Paul, he's getting his priorities right. The most important reality, what matters most in this life is not our physical life. What matters most in this life is what is going on on the inside of us. I'm not talking about our kidneys or our heart. I'm talking about the real us. The one that will live forever. Our spirit that will live forever. That is the most important reality. And when Paul prays, and you see his prayers in Scripture, what we just read, you see that is his priority. He's praying that we would have strength to comprehend the beauty of Christ. The glory of Christ. His work and who we are in Him. The, the depth of the love of Christ. And to know the love that surpasses knowledge. To be filled with all the fullness of God. What a prayer! When's the last time have we prayed? When's the last time I've prayed, you've prayed? When's the last time we've prayed that God would fill us with the fullness of all that He is. The knowledge of all that He is. So what we're going to look at today, really it's kind of a topical just springboard off of these thoughts of priorities in prayer. 
We're going to look at two priorities in prayer and then the implications of those priorities. So here's the argument that, that I think Paul is making here in his prayer. And here's what we're going to talk about is that we should pray for these realities. We should pray as Paul. Pray like Paul. We should pray that we would come to understand something that is incomprehensible really in its fullness, which is who is Christ? And, and we should pray that we would comprehend the depth of His work, the depth of His love. We should pray that we would understand to a greater degree who we are in Him. So we're going to look at two priorities in prayer, and we're going to look at ending with the implications of praying in that way. So here's the first thing. Pray to comprehend what Christ has accomplished. What should we pray for? Pray to comprehend what Christ has accomplished. And this is what Paul says, wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of Him. The eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know, know what? Know Christ. Know His work. And he prays that we may have strength to comprehend. And so, let's look at what Jesus has accomplished. What has Jesus has, what has He accomplished? If, if Paul is praying that, that we would have strength to comprehend Christ, I believe we must pray to comprehend what Christ has accomplished. What has He accomplished? And we're going to go on a little journey here. Let's look at what Christ has accomplished. Look, look at uh, Ephesians chapter 2. The, uh, uh, chapter 2 uh, of Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus. Uh, Paul says this, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Have you pondered lately that we used to be dead? Before Christ, we were dead in our trespasses and sins. We were dead. We were spiritually dead. Our lives were marked by sin and rebellion. Our problem was not the sins that we committed. Our problem was that we were natural born sinners. Paul says that. And by nature, we were children of wrath like the rest of mankind. This is a, a natural problem that we have. We are born with a sinful nature. This is our problem. No one is born neutral. And that's a philosophy of, of our world today that, that everyone's neutral. Uh, we, everyone has a blank slate when they're born. They can either go in one direction or the other. They can go towards goodness or they can go towards evil. But the truth is, is that no one is born neutral. Everyone is born with their, with their, their sight set on evil. And it's only an intervention of God that we can be born again and saved and we can be transformed, but there's no one that is neutral. And as a result of this reality, we had a different spirit at work in us. What did Paul say? We were following a different God. We were following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit at work in the children of disobedience. This is who we were before Christ. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. We were rebellious against God's commands. This is who we were. Psalm 1 gives a great description of who we were. Psalm 1 talks about the blessed man and the wicked man. Psalm 1 says this, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked or stands in the way of sinners nor sits in the seat of scoffers. So that's the blessed man. That's the righteous man. He doesn't do these things. He doesn't sit. He doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked. He doesn't stand in the way of sinners. He doesn't sit in the seat of the scoffer. 
But the unrighteous, the wicked, we who were unrighteous and rebellious against God, we who were by nature children of wrath, we used to walk in the counsel of the wicked. That marked our life. We would listen to the philosophy of the world. We would walk in the counsel of the wicked. We used to stand in the way of sinners. What does that mean? Well, it's this progression. We'll listen to the philosophy of the world ungodly ideologies and what we take into our minds this is what we were before christ what we would take into our minds it would cause us to to go from intake in our eyes and our ears to standing in the way of sinners sinners have a a way that they walk and so we walked along with sinners as sinners with other sinners we would we'd listen to their counsel we would walk in their ways and then we used to sit in the seat of the scoffer so we'd go from listening to the things of the world, walking the way of the world, and then mocking the ways of God. This is who we used to be. Walk, stand, sit, listen, linger, laugh. We listen to the world, linger in their ways, and mock and laugh at those who would follow Christ. This is who we were. Dead in their trespasses and sins. We were not the blessed man in Psalm 1. We were the wicked man or woman in Psalm 1. This was our life. We were moving down, as, as Scripture tells us, as Jesus tells us, we were moving down the broad road that leads to destruction. Jesus said, broad is the way that leads to destruction. Narrow is the way that leads to life. Before Christ, we were headed down the broad road that leads to destruction. And many go that route. Many go that way. And we were a part of the many. We were a part of the many that were headed down the broad road that leads to destruction and everlasting judgment. This is who we were. And no amount of good works, no amount of righteousness done in our flesh could do anything to change the outcome of where we were headed. But we tried, didn't we? Didn't we try? Apart from Christ, many of us grew up in religious systems that, that taught us that, that, we could, that we could try to earn God's approval by things that we did. Maybe you grew up in a place where you were taught to believe that, that, that the sacraments and, and, and taking of the sacraments and communion and the Eucharist and, and, and confession and, and all the different sacraments, that, that, that by doing those things, this is what was going to keep you in the state of grace and keep you connected with God. But there was no amount of of taking part in the sacraments, no amount of of following man-made rules and religion that was going to get you in the place of righteousness before God. Because we were by nature children of wrath. Something greater had to take place. There had to be a transformation. This was our life. We were moving down this broad road. But God, who is rich in mercy, But God who is rich in mercy, what does Paul say in Ephesians 2? Jesus made us alive together with Him and He saved us by grace. Amen? He saved us by grace. By grace, you have been saved through faith. Salvation is by grace. Salvation is by grace. Grace alone. It's by grace alone. Salvation by grace. Listen to this. It will be up there on the screen probably in your notes. Salvation by grace is necessary because of the nature of man. Salvation by grace is necessary because of our nature. We have nothing inherently good in us that will help us to atone for our sin. Because of our sinful nature, salvation has to be by grace. We can't pick ourselves up 
off the ground. Pick, we can't raise ourselves up from the dead because we were dead in our trespasses and sins. We're spiritually dead. So salvation has to be of grace. Salvation by grace is necessary because of who we were before Christ. Salvation by grace is possible because of the nature of God. But God, who is rich in mercy. So, so we can't save ourselves. Salvation by grace is necessary because we can't save ourselves. But salvation by grace is possible because God is a God of salvation. Because God saves. God saves. Jesus is a Savior. And salvation is received only on the merits of Christ. Salvation by grace is necessary because of who we were. Salvation by grace is possible because of who Christ is. And salvation by grace is received only on the merits of Christ. Do you believe that? The doctrine of grace is a pride killer for those who place hope in their religious effort. The doctrine of grace is a pride killer for those who place their hope or rest their strength on their own self-effort to be right before God. Notice what Jesus said as He hung on the cross just before He died. John 19, a jar full of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to His mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, He said what? It is finished. And He bowed His head and He gave up His spirit. It is finished. What was finished? Redemption was complete. The price was paid. He had done the final work that was necessary to bring redemption to a lost world. It is finished. Nothing more to be done. No extra to be done just in case. No need to hedge our bets. Jesus said it is finished. He completed the work that was necessary for the atonement of sin. He completed the work. There's no need for a resacrificing of Christ in every Mass. Do you know that's what takes place in the Roman Catholic Church, in the Catholic Church, in the Catholic Church, in your community, in our community? What takes place is the, the elements, the, the, the Eucharist, the, the bread and the wine. It's put in a special place in, 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 in the doctrine of transubstantiation, which teaches that the bread and the, and the wine become the literal flesh and blood of Jesus. And so, uh, and so when, you're, when, you're at a, when you're at a Mass, I was at a Mass recently, when you're at a Mass, the priest will hold up the elements and, and I almost fell over when I heard him say it. He said, he lifted it up and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God. And I thought, a lot of thoughts, but I thought, why are we not on our face right now? Right? Why are we not falling down in work? Behold, the Lamb of God in the bread and in the wine. And so, built into the doctrine of the Mass, built into the doctrine of the Eucharist, is the idea that there is a re-sacrificing of the Lamb of God at every Mass. The book of Hebrews tells us that Christ was the once for all time sacrifice for sin. No more needing of sacrifice. No more re-sacrificing of Christ and no more, no more re-sacrificing of anything, of bulls and goats and pigeons and doves. Once for all sacrifice. When Jesus said it was finished, we no longer need to sacrifice Him again. It was a complete work. Complete and total work. 
because it is finished. There's no need for us by our good works to supplement the work of Christ on the cross because it is done. Amen? This is the work of Christ. But our tendency is to be like, is to be like the dad or the mom with the young child. You ever given your young child a job to do? Like here's a good example. You tell them, you say, hey, how about you do the dishes? Do you remember when you did dishes before you had a dishwasher? Right now, dishwashers help kids get away with half jobs because <laughs> they, can, they can get away with it, put it in the dishwasher. But I remember growing up, we had no dishwasher. We were the dishwashers. And when you're younger, your parents train you to do the dishes, and so you do them, and your parents go behind you because you don't get it done right. Right? The kids don't get it done right. Whatever the project is, we send our kids to do it, but, we, but we're watching, we're watching, and, and we come back behind them, or we interrupt them, and we, we do the job right. That is our tendency to, to be like that, but our Lord doesn't need us to finish something He already accomplished. He doesn't need us to come back behind and scrub out a little bit of the dirt on our own. Right? We, listen, there's no amount of good deeds we can do that can scrub out the sin of our soul. Only a sacrifice from a sinless Savior can do that. He doesn't need us to come back and scrub and help Him out. God, I'm just helping you out a little bit. How often do we pray to comprehend that work? How often do we pray to comprehend that it is finished work? How often do we pray, God, press that work on my heart. Remind me of what you've done. Lord, 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 give me strength to comprehend the depth and the, and the width and the height and the depth of your love that you would go to the cross, that you would take my place, that you would absorb the wrath that I deserve. How often do we pray as the Apostle Paul prays here in Ephesians 1 and 3 and he prays in Colossians and other of his letters. How often do we pray that we would know Christ and His work? My prayer is, is that we would pray to comprehend something that we really can't comprehend fully. Can we really fully comprehend the work of Christ? Can we really comprehend it? We will pray often for our physical needs and, and we should. Pray often for our, phys our physical needs. You remember Matthew 6? Jesus says, take no thought for tomorrow what you'll eat, drink, or wear. He says, don't worry about tomorrow. He says, look at the birds. They, 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 they need a torn or spin. Or, or the flowers need a torn or, or spin. And they're, they're arrayed with lots of beautiful clothes. The Lord takes care of them. The birds, they don't, have to, they don't have to go hunting for their meal. The Lord provides their meal for them. What does Jesus say at the end of Matthew 6? He says, but seek ye first the kingdom of God. What is Jesus saying there in Matthew 6? He's saying that the greater reality, the greater reality for us to ponder and to pray about and to think about is not the food and the clothes and the shelter and the sickness and the disease and the job and the finances and the provision and all the things that fill our prayers. Jesus is saying, seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness and what? All these things will be added to you. There's a priority in prayer. May we, may we prioritize, prioritize our prayer as we see Jesus called us to pray, as we see the Apostle Paul is praying. How often do we pray to comprehend the depth of Christ in His work? Don't we often take it for granted what He's done for us? 
When you think about Christ on the cross, we often, we often just, hey, yes, I believe it. I believe He died for me. But we don't stop and think about the fact that He died for my sins. For my sins. For my rebellion. For my anger. For my temper. For my lust. For my greed. For my gossiping. For my lying. He died for my sins. Sins demanded a payment. Demanded a punishment. And Jesus absorbed the wrath of God for those sins. For me. It was because of me. What a great reality to ponder for us to pray. God, help us to comprehend the depth of who You are and the power of Your work. Pray to understand. So what should we pray for? What should we pray for? What, 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 what is the greatest reality to pray for? What is the most? What matters most? Pray to comprehend what Christ has accomplished. Secondly, pray to comprehend who we are in Christ. Pray to comprehend who we are in Christ. We must comprehend His work. God, help me to understand Your work and help me to understand who I am because of Your work. Ephesians 1, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and a revelation in the knowledge of Him. We need an increasing knowledge and revelation of Christ, His work, and who we are in Him. We need an increasing revelation of Christ, His work, and who we are in Him. Do you know who you are in Christ? Do you know who you are in Christ? I, we talked about who we were, right? We, we were what? We were dead. We were by nature children of wrath. And we were following the God of the world, of, of this world, the prince of the power of the air. We were, we were by nature children of wrath. That's who we were. But do you know who you are in Christ? After you've come to faith in Christ, you've abandoned self-effort to appease for your sins and you've thrown yourself fully over onto Christ and you've been forgiven, you've been justified. Do you know who you are? Look at Ephesians 2. Notice what Paul said. You were dead. You were dead. You once walked. This is who you used to be. But, but listen to Ephesians 2.5. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, He made us alive together with Christ. So you were dead, but now you are can you talk back to me? Alive. So that's who you are in Christ. You're alive. You were dead. Now you're alive. We were spiritually dead, but in Christ we are made alive. This is a total transformation. Now, you know, it doesn't get much more total than that, does it? I mean, you can think about things that are half dead <laughs> being brought back. Resuscitation. Salvation is not a resuscitation. That, that's false religion. False religion is a resuscitation. You're kind of you're kind of halfway dead. You, you know, you got you got your act together a little bit. You're pretty good. You're a good citizen. You're paying your taxes. Don't cheat on your wife. You're pretty good. You just need a little resuscitation, a little bit more oxygen, a little bit a little bit extra effort. You know, and God just resuscitates, resuscitates us. No, it's a complete total transformation. We were dead, dead. You can't get any more dead than dead. Dead is dead. Dead is not halfway. It's dead. It's all the way. This is the way the Bible describes us before Christ. We were dead. We're dead. Now we're alive. John 3, Jesus talks to a Pharisee who thought he could resuscitate himself, keep himself alive by obeying the law. And Jesus answered him, Nicodemus, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is 
born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Dead people can't see, right? You ever been around dead people? They can't see. Kind of, a, kind of like a part of the process of being dead. You can't see. You can't see. And this is the reality of for those who are not in Christ. You are dead spiritually and you can't see. Paul tells us that in Corinthians, that the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from what? From seeing Christ. We're dead spiritually and we can't see. But after Christ, who are we? We're alive, we're born again, and we have eyes to see. You remember that moment when you had eyes to see? I remember the moment when I came alive to Estelle. I was dead to her. She was dead to me before I met her. But then she came alive to me. And I had eyes for her. You remember that for your spouse? Right? How about you remember when you had eyes to see Christ? To see His beauty. To, to comprehend the work that He did for you on the cross. You, your eyes are open. What, what is that picture? It's a picture of what Jesus is telling Nicodemus. You've got to be born again, buddy. And Nicodemus says, I, I'm so confused. I'm thinking about birth, physical birth and physical death. And he says to Jesus, what do you mean? I've got to go back in my mother's womb and I've got to be born again? How is that possible? And Jesus is right. It, you're exactly right. It's not possible. You can't do it. You can't do it. Look, look, look at the wind. You can't control the wind where it goes, where it's coming from or where it's going. So it is with everyone who's born of the Spirit. He says, it's not your doing, buddy. It's the Spirit of God who saves, who makes alive. We must be born again. Being born again means we are made alive. We're born once in the flesh. And we're by nature a child of wrath. But there must be a resurrection and there must be a new birth. So who are we in Christ? We are made alive. We have been born again. And then 2 Corinthians 5 tells us this. 2 Corinthians 5.17 Who are we? Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, has been made alive, born again, he is a what? A new creation. The old's passed away. Behold, the new has come. So what does that mean? Let's break it down word for word. Would you look, would you look at the screen or... I don't know if you turn to 2 Corinthians 5. Let's, let's read it real slowly. Therefore, if, if, there's a contingency there because not everyone's going to be a part of that, that, that if. Some are going to reject Christ. If anyone. What does that mean? That means anyone. That means anyone. That means a, a Hamas terrorist Hold up. Could hear the gospel of Jesus Christ and repent and believe can be born again. Or it means a highly religious, highly religious person who is dead in their sins can hear the gospel of Jesus Christ and be, be born again. And everyone in between. Anyone. If anyone is in Christ, that means that we have leaned into His work. Christ has opened our eyes to see who Christ is and we have thrown ourselves over onto Him and so that by salvation, we are no longer in ourselves, leaning on ourselves. We are leaning into Christ. He is in us and we are in Him. We are in Him. We are, we are, we are leaning on His sufficient work. And as a result of that, through faith, we are what? A new creation. What does that mean? It means we're not old. It means we're new. 
And these were brand new. The old has what? Passed away. What does it passed away mean? It means it's gone. The old's gone. That old man is gone. The new man is alive. Behold, the new has come. The old is gone. The new has come. So who are we in Christ? We are new creations with a new nature that, that, that is surrendered to Christ. This is who we are. Do you believe that? I know some of you are like, oh, Pastor Ben, but man, this, this new nature that I got, I don't know if I'm new because I mean, I still struggle with gossiping and lying and stealing maybe. <laughs> I still struggle with these temptations. How can I be new in Christ when I have these temptations? Well, well here's, here's what happens. You are made new at the most important place of who you are, which is your spirit, man. You are given a new nature, but that new nature lives inside of a flesh skin, mind, thoughts that were trained by that dead old man. That dead old man is gone. Didn't come back out the water. It's gone. But this body of ours, this flesh of ours, has to be retrained to obey our new nature instead of our old nature. Are you tracking with me? The old nature is dead. You're, there's only one new nature for a believer in Jesus Christ. It is the nature of of our new nature in Christ. New creation. The old's gone. The new has come. The old's gone. The new has come. A new creation. The new birth. Listen, the new birth is not a process of making what is old appear new. I'm going to say that again. You can write that down. The new birth is not a process of making what is old appear to be new. So the Christian life is not trying to make our old nature become something it can never be. The old nature is dead. That's not the Christian life. The new birth is not a process of making what is old appear new. Would you like to look newer in your physical body? You know that there's, there's a guy named Brian Johnson. He's 45 years old. He's a, he was a billionaire tech guy, and he's been floating around social media. Some of you probably already know who this guy is. It was Brian Johnson. Listen, he spends $2 million a year to try and age in reverse. <laughs> when you watch one of his videos, it is amazing to watch what the guy does he sees himself as like a lab rat he's the test study he he has 30 uh 30 i think it's 30 doctors that are employed by him to monitor his entire body inside and out so when he wakes up he has this regimen where he is getting some type of light treatment for his face and he goes and he takes different certain type of baths and eats certain type of foods and he takes 111 pills a day at one point, he was eating 70 pounds of pureed vegetables. Can you imagine that? He has this exercise routine that he's just, I mean, it's just unbelievable. He actually also takes uh, plasma from his 18-year-old son and puts it into him. And so he, he, he's saying that he's, he's starting to reverse age, that some of his organs are, are five years younger than what a 45-year-old would have, and he's got a heart of this age and a lung of this age, and, and, and he, thinks he's, he thinks he's figuring it out, and he's, figuring, he's working it out. But, but you know what Brian Johnson is trying to do? Is he's trying to avoid death. He's trying to avoid death. He's trying to live forever. The big problem is that he's focusing on the wrong person. I, look, I am... Look, I want to live as long as the Lord wants me to live. And I'm not against health and eating 70 pounds of pureed vegetables if that's what you want to do. I'm not against any of that. Exercise and, and diet, that's good. And the Apostle Paul says, says bodily exercise profits a little. It does. It profits. It's beneficial. But Brian Johnson is trying to avoid death. He's trying to beat death. 
The big problem is he's focusing on the wrong person. Second Corinthians 4 tells us this. So we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. So if I was talking to Brian Johnson right now, I would ask him, how is your inner self being renewed day by day? I'm not talking about your lungs, Brian, or your heart, or your kidney, or your liver. I'm talking about who you are. Is it being renewed day by day? Or are you only worried about the physical? Hebrews 9 tells us it is appointed once for man to die, then the judgment. The physical body will decay. This earth suit we live in will not last forever. And Brian Johnson is focusing on becoming a new creation, but he's focusing on the wrong person. And in Christ, we are a new creation. We, who, who, who we really are is made new. In Christ, we are born again. We've been given a new nature. We have become the righteousness of God. So who are we in Christ? We're new creations. The old nature has been crucified and buried. We are resurrected to new life in Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For our sake, He made Him to be sin who knew no sin so that we might become what? Can you believe that? Can you comprehend that? That we would become the righteousness of God? How can that be possible that any of us could become the righteousness of God? This is the great exchange. Our unrighteousness for His perfect righteousness. As believers, we've been given a righteousness that does not originate from our own works. We've, we have a righteousness that we could never do enough to earn. And in Christ, because of what He accomplished through faith in His work, we are declared righteous before God and we are given an imputed righteousness. The very righteousness of God becomes ours by faith. Wow. Enemies of God now called friends. Once enemies now seated at His table. Once unclean. Once guilty. Now forgiven. Now righteous. Who are you in Christ? For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life. We are made alive. We were enemies, but now we're made alive. So again, I ask, how often do we pray prayers like Paul prayed in Ephesians 1 and 3? How often do we pray that the Lord would help us to comprehend what He has done and who we are in Christ? I mean, I'll tell you how often I do. Not very. And if you're like me, what I pray about is tomorrow morning, God, God I thank You for today. God, I pray that You would be with me today. Be with me when I'm on my job, Lord. Be with me uh, when, I'm, when I'm doing my schoolwork. God, be with me as I'm trying to bring leadership to Homo Christian School. Lord, be with me as I'm trying to bring leadership to Living Word Church. Lord, be with us at the pumpkin patch. You, did you ever pray like me? Lord, be with me, be with me, be with me. How many of you know that's a, a, that's a bad prayer to pray? How can we pray for God to be somewhere that He already is? He's with us. He said He'd never leave us nor forsake us. I, I think we, because we don't pray to comprehend the depth of what Christ has done and who we are in Him, we forget He's with us wherever we go. 
We are the temples of the Holy Spirit. Are you catching what we're stepping in here? Listen, spiritual realities impact our natural realities. The greater spiritual truths of the Gospel have implications on how we live. How often do we pray that we would comprehend what Christ has accomplished? Pray to comprehend who we are in Christ. Now here's the implication. Pray to comprehend the difference that it makes. This is the third point. Pray to comprehend the difference that it makes. So what difference does what difference do these great realities make in our Christian life? What do they make? Why study about what God has done? Why pray that we would have our eyes enlightened to comprehend? Why? Why pray that? Why, why not just pray for my sickness? Why not just pray that God would take care of my finances? Why not just pray that He would be with me? Why not just pray those practical prayers? Because. I'm not saying we don't pray those prayers. Why do we start here? Because understanding the depth of all that Christ has done for us and who we are in Him will work to fuel a life of worship. Are you tracking with me? Because understanding the depth of all that Christ has done for us and who we are in Him will work to fuel a life of worship. I'm not talking about the ten minutes we sing here on Sunday mornings. That's not worship. It can be. That's not all worship is. Life is worship. When we ponder the greatness of God and all He's done, it will fuel a life of worship. Pondering great and glorious gospel truths will shape the way we think, live, and worship. Do you believe that? Thinking deeply that Christ took my place. God pressing on my heart that He took my place. He paid the price for my sin. God pressing on my heart of who I am in Christ. Romans 12.1 says this, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by, by the mercy or because of the mercy of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. So do you see the order there? You start with the mercies of God, the grace of God, the work of God, who we are in Him. Because of all of those realities, we present our bodies as a living sacrifice to obedience, to following after Him. Understanding about God as revealed in His Word will transform the way we evaluate our lives and will transform the prayers that we pray. So listen, real practical as we close here. How will our today change? How will our today change when we pray to comprehend the greatness of Christ and His work? When we pray to comprehend the greatness of Christ and His work and who we are in Him, we say, God, help me to see it. Help me to believe it. Help me to know it. Remind me of who You are. Remind me of what You've done. Remind me of who I am in You. How will those truths pressed under our heart impact our today? Here's three, three ways. We face temptations with a heart of humility. Life is filled with temptations, are they not? We face temptations with a heart of humility. Whenever we understand all that Christ has done, when we seek to comprehend the price that He's paid, when we are faced with temptation to sin, how could we still sin when we know what it cost our Savior? Do you get it? How could we sin when we know what it cost our Savior? When we sin, it's because we turn off our brain about the knowledge of all that Christ did because of our sin. When we comprehend all that Christ paid and suffered and bore in His flesh, 
Because of our sin, we face temptation with humility and we come before God and we say, God, I humbly submit to You and I reject the lies of the enemy. Face temptations differently. Do you see it? We face suffering and trials differently. We face suffering and trials with a proper perspective. When we ponder the depth of all that Christ has done for us and who we are in Him, when we look at our sufferings and our trials and our situations, God helps us to see an eternal perspective and we don't become like Brian Johnson trying to prevent suffering, trying to prevent death, trying to stop the process that God has has given us in this life. And we have a proper perspective about suffering and trials. And we realize that the greater reality is the eternal reality. We face temptations different. We face suffering and trials differently. We face decisions about the future. How do we face them? With eternal priorities. When we see and savor and ponder the depth of who Christ is and what He's done for us. When we understand the depth of who we are in Christ. And the Lord gives us opportunities or there's opportunities that are placed before us of decisions we have to make about where we'll live or where we'll go to church or who we will marry or a job that we'll take or wherever we will go. When these eternal realities are pressed upon our hearts, we will not make decisions that will put us in positions to hinder us from prioritizing preaching the Gospel to people. Are you following that? Our lives change. Our lives change. Our entire lives change. The way we handle temptation, the way we think about suffering and pain, the way we make life's decisions. We say, God, I want to live my life for Your glory because of all that You've done in me and for me and because of who I am in You. I want to live a life that is shaped by the Gospel and the call to reach the lost for Christ. Wherever You want me to go, however far you want me to go, whatever you want me to do, I want my life to be shaped by the Gospel of Jesus Christ. So yes, I think the Apostle Paul got it right. Don't you think so? I think he prayed the right prayers. I think Jesus gave us the right priority. Seek first the Kingdom of God. And the Lord cares about who you marry. And He's burdened with your sicknesses. And He's burdened with your suffering. And He's not a high priest that, that, that that is not moved by what we go through. But I believe we can learn from Christ and learn from the prayers of the apostles that if we will lean into Christ and to understand who He is and what He's done, it shapes the way we see our world and our life. It changes our priorities. So what should we pray for? I should pray to know Him. That I may know Him. That I may know Him. So, did anyone figure out the Colette's math problem while I was preaching? Anybody got it worked out? Anybody stopped paying attention? You've been working on it? Anybody figured it out? If you did, if you did, what difference does it make? (laughs) <laughs> what difference does it make? That is so complex and beyond comprehension. But if it did, what does it really make a difference? Is it, is it, it might get you the engineering job at MIT. I, sure. <laughs> but what difference does it make? It's my problem with math. I'm trying to figure out the difference it makes. Here's another question. 
Can anyone wrap their mind around how God became man? Lived a sinless life? Died a sinner's death? Took our place? Paid the penalty for our sin? Rose again for our justification? And now by faith we can become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus? Can anyone wrap their minds around that? A little bit. We can start to get it. Holy Spirit helps us. We can lean into it. No matter how hard I lean into the Colette's math problem, I'm not getting any traction, but the Spirit, we can comprehend a sinless Savior dying, a sinner's death, taking our place and paying our, the price for our sins, rising again so we can be forgiven and become the righteousness of God. It's hard to comprehend, but we can pray like Paul that the eyes of our heart would be enlightened to comprehend the riches of His grace. And what difference does that knowledge make? What difference does that knowledge make? I would say it changes everything. It changes absolutely everything about your life. And listen, and if, if you can't be in agreement with that statement that it changes absolutely everything, then you need to place your faith in Jesus Christ. Because when you do, Place your faith in Jesus Christ. It will change absolutely everything. Amen.